Welcome to the Plutarch Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Cox from Grammaticus.co. In this inaugural episode, I'd like to look at Plutarch's reasons for writing biography. And in so doing, we'll have a few reasons for reading him along the way. Before we get too much further in, I guess we need to answer the question, who was Plutarch? Plutarch was a Roman citizen born in a Greek-speaking part of the world, the Eastern Mediterranean, who lived from about 46 AD to about 120 AD. So really at the height of the Roman Empire's power. Uh, He was made an honorary Roman citizen. He was a priest at the still important temple shrine to Apollo at Delphi. But he seems to have spent most of his life in or around his hometown of Chironea, uh, which was in the neighborhood of Delphi. He may have studied in Athens, and he probably visited Rome, but he seems to have invested most of his time and energy into his family, local politics, and these books, which he wrote for posterity and thankfully survive. So we actually don't know too much more about Plutarch's life than just that. In less than a minute, we can summarize Plutarch as we knew him, but he really didn't want himself to be known. It's not his personality that comes through in his works. Uh, We'll see, actually, that very rarely does he turn and talk about himself in the thousands of pages he wrote about the heroes of early Greece and early Rome. So that brings us to the second question, which is why read Plutarch? His answer comes from a number of different sources, a number of different lives, where he does, in the introduction, talk, turn and talk about why he is writing these lives. It's pretty rare. Um, Plutarch, when you read him, right, he writes in an essay style. His biographical essays vary from about 5,000 words to about 20,000 words. So if the average adult reads 300 words a minute, uh, then in translation, you're going to be able to get through a Plutarch life you know, in a week or two if you're reading it consistently and maybe in about a month if you're not reading it consistently. So that's a good thing to keep in mind is in this essay format, he doesn't waste a lot of time on intros and conclusions. You know that he's introducing the character because he's talking about his parents or his early education or one of the earliest memories that uh, people have of stories that we tell about him. So at the beginning of Emilius Paulus's life, a Roman who conquered Macedonia, and really, if you've never heard of him, don't worry, most, most people haven't, he talks about how he had started these lives for other people, but he finds that he's continuing them for himself. He calls the great heroes that he chooses to write about a mirror for self-improvement so that he can harmonize himself, harmonize his own life, with the virtues that he decides to write about. And even more than that, he invites these characters like a guest into his house, keeping them alive with uh, his memory, preparing him to filter all of his modern experience through the lens of these great men. So I think a lot of us are familiar with groups of people that get together, groups of entrepreneurs, groups of friends, right, that run masterminds. And the idea is to put six or seven perspectives that you respect around the table and to throw an idea out there and to have the people that you respect, the people that know you, the people that have often been through a similar situation, 
to poke holes in it, to strengthen the arguments, to make a greater sense of the decision that you're about to make, really to inject inject some justice, some prudence, some perspective into the idea that you're trying to make. This is exactly what Plutarch sees these 46 lives as. He thinks, I'm inviting these men around the table so that they can give me advice as to how I can best live my life right now. So the primary reason that you should read Plutarch is because you're alive. And the question that you have to answer with your life is how am I going to live? A great way to do that is to examine how other people have lived, and it's helpful to start with those people that others have considered great. Do you have to consider Plutarch's heroes your own heroes? No, not at all. Do you have to admire as virtues all of the things that Plutarch admires? Again, no, of course not. But it's a good place to start. So his other answer comes, or another answer comes in his life of Pericles. He talks about two things. Here, he gets philosophical. And we should realize that though we're reading biography, we're not reading biography that is the daughter of history. We're reading biography that really is the daughter of philosophy. Plutarch is going to quote philosophers as often as he's going to quote the historians. Plutarch is going to draw philosophical conclusions and go on philosophical rabbit trails far more often than he's going to go on historical rabbit trails or political rabbit trails or military rabbit trails. So at the very beginning of the life of Pericles, he goes on one of these philosophical rabbit trails and he tells us that the soul by nature has two aspects to it. He's really just combining earlier works of Aristotle here. He says that we love to know and we love to see. And that biography in a peculiar way allows us both to know and to see at the same time. There's something about the scope and the scale of focusing on just one man and his beginning, middle, and end, his highs and lows, what he had control over, what he didn't have control over, that allows us to see and know at the same time. There's a way in which Pericles comes to life right in front of us that he wouldn't have if we're only reading about him in a long narrative of 5th century Greece. So the limited scope of biography really allows us to focus on Plutarch's favorite things, which are themes like fortune and circumstance, education and virtue. One of the greatest examples of this in modern biography is Ron Chernow's biography of Alexander Hamilton, was so popular as a book biography, and granted, not very many people read it, but a lot of people were reading it, and enough people to get Lin-Manuel Miranda excited about it, and when he read it, he turned it into a musical, which then made Alexander Hamilton, once again, not just a household name that people knew they should know something about, but actually something where regular American citizens knew the beginning, middle, and end of the life of a founding father. And Hamilton is a great example of the power of biography in encapsulating a specific era. Hamilton's biography really captures or allows you to examine through the eyes of one man the drama of 1776, that's really act one of the Hamilton play, and, and the Declaration of Independence. And then act two is the drama of the Constitution and how that plays out in the 
first three presidencies, Washington, Adams, and Jefferson. There's so much that's going on in there that his biography is showing so much more than just, this is what he did, this is how he did it. Another thing that's clear in Hamilton is that Lin-Manuel Miranda and everybody writing and reading the biography is supposed to feel for Hamilton on some deep level. We may not agree with every decision that he makes, and the musical does a pretty good job of glossing over exactly how often he cheats on his wife, which is totally, we're never going to know that. But So there are things that we may disagree with Hamilton on, but ultimately Hamilton is held up for us as a hero. So too with most of Plutarch's lives. So I actually want to focus on one other aspect of that because you may think, oh, I just don't want to read 46 biographies that are just going to go on and on about how great these ancient dead guys are. And we should realize that it's not quite that simple. Four of the lives, and some people consider these four to be some of Plutarch's best writings, were specifically chosen as counterexamples. The four lives of terrible human beings, Alcibiades, Coriolanus, Mark Antony, and Demetrius, are the four men that Plutarch chooses to show that greatness and goodness can be completely diametrically opposed can be complete opposites and so the Alcibiades and Mark Antony are good examples of men who reached great levels of power prestige influence military glory etc and yet no one or very few people would look back and call them good men and then this is just my own reading but I think there's five lives where we can see that the person harmed himself and his people, whether that was the Greeks or the Romans, almost as much as he helped, or maybe even more than he helped. And really, Plutarch leaves that, that conclusion up to your to the readers, which is really cool. He puts the power in our hands to say, well, okay, Marius and Sulla are two men that he decided to do the biography of, right? They're the first generation of bloody civil war where legion Roman legionaries are literally marching against their fellow citizens, breaking down the gates of the city of Rome and putting people to death because they're on a prescription list. That's heinous. But he writes about Marius and Sulla. Did Marius and Sulla have any good points? Um, Lysander ruins the Spartans while himself being a fairly virtuous man. The irony is pretty strong in Plutarch when he points out Lysander himself had control over being around wealth or being exposed to great wealth and not being corrupted by it. And yet the wealth he brought into the Spartan people corrupted their own constitution, corrupted their way of life, and the Spartans were never the same afterwards. Now, whether or not that's historically true isn't nearly as important as what it is to think about. How can a good leader bring bad, bring about bad ends for its his people? And the last example that comes to me are, uh, or the last two examples are Pyrrhus and Cato the Elder. Um, Cato the Elder's stoic virtue borders on miserliness and lacks humanity to the point that Plutarch, more than once in that life, has to sort of distance himself from what Cato may have considered virtue. The, his treatment of his slaves um, and his 
miserliness both in taxation and his acquisitiveness in the way he tries to treat land and property as a means of gaining more money. Cato the Elder comes across as a, you know, a Scrooge McDuck or um, an Ebenezer, Uncle Ebenezer from Kidnapped. And then Pyrrhus is sort of the anti-Alexander. He's somebody who can win a lot of battles and never, never win the war. Pyrrhus can never hold on to what he conquers. And so at the end of his life, Pyrrhus and the Epirotes that he leads are no better off in global politics or influence or authority than any of the other peoples around him. And ultimately, Epirus gets conquered by the Romans like everybody else. So that's those are just a few examples as we look forward to what we're going to be talking about in each of these episodes. Why should you read Plutarch? Well, I think Plutarch has already given you a couple reasons there secretly. He could add men to your mastermind. He could add men to the circle of influence that you have on you. Uh, and he could add men as counterexamples as well. Maybe uh, not North Stars to sail towards, but stars to maybe keep on your left or stars to keep behind you because you definitely don't want to go in that direction. The other thing is that Plutarch's influence, Plutarch stands right there between the BC and AD line. And so his influence really extends behind him. Obviously, he's going to be the way that we remember a lot of these stories of these great men. So he's a fantastic introduction to the much longer histories, right? You can read the history of or the biography of Aristides, for example, in a few hours, but Herodotus's histories of the Persian Wars as a recorded book take almost 30 hours to get through, right? So perfect introduction. Read Aristides, read Themistocles, and you've got enough of the Persian Wars context that you'll get so much more out of Herodotus when you do get to him. So he serves as, a, as an introduction looking backwards in that way. He has an influence or he he has a particular draw for Christians. If you understand the nature of biography or the genre of biography, you understand a lot more about why and how the gospel writers, who were at least uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were writing biography, almost explicitly writing biography about Jesus. And they're working in a lot of the same Eastern Mediterranean genres that Plutarch is working in. And so there's a really fruitful way that you can compare. The two men never knew each other, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke definitely never knew Plutarch and never interacted with him. But the fact that they were both writing biography around the same time means that you can very fruitfully compare the style and some of the decisions they make to control the narrative, not around time alone, but around the person and what was most important about the person. I mean, just one of the easiest examples is that Plutarch will usually spend a few pages on the youth of the person, but the vast majority of Plutarch's lives focus on the public career, the career of public military prowess, the career of public political prowess, right? And we see that the three synoptic gospels do exactly the same thing. Jesus gets, you know, the story of his birth is important, who his family is, where he's from, and then really, we jump ahead to John the Baptist, and Jesus is fully grown, right? There's one small story when he was 12, but uh, that that's just one small parallel that's easy to see. The more, the more deeply you study Plutarch and the Gospels, the more I think there's a, there's a fruitful cross-pollination there. 
But it's not just that Plutarch looks back, and it's not just that Plutarch's writing biography around a time that's important for Christians to understand the genre well. He actually also looks forward, even though he doesn't know what he's looking forward to. Shakespeare took three of his Roman plays as direct lifts from the Thomas North translation of Plutarch's lives. If you read Coriolanus, the the life of Plutarch, and then you read the play, you're going to see that this is Shakespeare's inspiration. Shakespeare was a genius not because he invented new stories, but because he took stories that had already existed in the West and told them in an engaging and beautiful way and showed them, right, on stage. Shakespeare is another one who would probably agree with Plutarch 100% that that love of seeing and that love of knowing go hand in hand. And that's exa- that's the power of drama. It allows you to see while you know or to see what you know or to know and see at the same time. The famous French essayist Montaigne uh, models his essays on Plutarch's essays, not really his biographical essays. There's a whole other section that Plutarch wrote of essays that are usually called the Moralia, but have a host of different philosophical and ethical topics. Montaigne consciously models and quotes from Plutarch all the time. And the last ones, of course, Alexander Hamilton has already come up in this episode, but the Founding Fathers would not have had nearly as much political knowledge and the context of the ancient world if they didn't have Plutarch. What they all had in common was Plutarch. Even those that had read Thucydides in the original or Herodotus, they they or Polybius even, right? That somebody like Thomas Jefferson would have read read all of those guys and would have read all those guys in the original language. But somebody who didn't have quite as much time on his hands, some of the founding fathers who were maybe full-time lawyers and didn't have, you know, landed estates in the largest library in America, they they all read Plutarch. Every single one of them had Plutarch not, if, you know, not memorized, but close at hand in their heads. And so all the way up to the present day when you can think of Winston Churchill, JFK, right, great leaders have always been great readers very often. And so those great leaders are going to be readers of Plutarch. I can't guarantee that you will become a great leader just because you become a great reader. So Plutarch is a great introduction to the classical world. He's also a great introduction to classical education. What we're going to see time and again is the kinds of things that these heroes are trained in. Who did they train under? What did they learn? How important was rhetoric to their to their education? How important was logic? How important was philosophy? What philosophers did they know? Etc. Those things will all come out and we'll start to ask ourselves, well, what is a classical education and how has it changed from the first century BC or the fifth century BC? We'll also see that Plutarch has his own biases and blind spots. But I really, since I'm trying to get people to read Plutarch, I think those things will just come out naturally. We're going to disagree with Plutarch. We have our own opinions. We're not just going to be nodding our heads and filling our minds with whatever Plutarch says. Um, So let me give a couple more notes as we hopefully have convinced you that Plutarch is worth starting to read. Uh, But let me give you a couple more notes on the format of the show. The I plan to do a format where we actually do a brief 30-minute show per each life. So there's going to be 46 episodes. I don't know how often they'll be released yet. And the point of the episode is to inspire you to read the life and give you enough context for that to be fruitful. Plutarch can be difficult. 
the biggest difficulty with Plutarch is the immense amount of names and places that he will throw at you in pretty short order in a condensed essay. So if I've given you the lay of the land of the battles of Marathon and Plataea before you jump into the life of Aristides, that'll be good. If you know exactly what the first generation of civil war was like, then you'll have a much more fruitful read of Cicero, Cato, Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus. So that's what I want to do. I want to inspire you and give you context that you would need so that when you read Plutarch's biography the first time of whatever life you choose to download, you get way more out of it than you would if you were reading it alone. And that actually leads to the next question, which is which translation of Plutarch should you read? There are so many free translations of Plutarch online. I'll put some links in the show notes, but one of the most or easiest places to go is Wikipedia, which lists all of the lives in order with their parallels, Greek on the left, Roman on the right. All of those are totally fine English translations. They are going to be written in the idiom of their time. So Bernadotte Perrin's translation reads like Dickens. He is writing at, and he's writing in a sententious style. The Dryden translation, or what's called the Dryden translation, even though Dryden probably translated very few of them, is written in the style you would expect, the 18th century style. It was updated in the 19th century by you know, a mid-Victorian Hellenist. They're difficult reads for somebody looking for modern English prose. The prose style will be long sentences where it is easy to get lost as to what exactly we're talking about before you reach the end. So the best modern translations are unfortunately more expensive. So you'll see basically on Amazon, and I'll link to these in the show notes, you'll see two options when you look for Plutarch's Lives. The Modern Library publishes a two-volume paperback set. That is basically the updated John Dryden translation. It is not very good, but it is, or it is not very easy to read but it is readable and it will give you all of the lives. So if you're really committed, like me, to finishing all of the lives, then that's probably the cheapest foray into that outside of just reading them online on the internet. Um, But you should keep in mind that all you're paying for the Modern Library to do is print out a bunch of stuff that you have access to on the internet. The Penguin editions, which I will also link to, are very good translations. They were started in the 1950s. They've been updated several times all the way into the 2000s. And they have five volumes. They don't put the parallels together, but I actually like their presentation first. Their presentation was my first exposure to Plutarch in undergrad. They will present Plutarch's lives chronologically, which means they keep the Romans together around the fall of the Roman Republic. I'm looking at that one right now. And the fall of the Roman Republic has the six lives pertaining to the fall. I think there's some lives missing from this. I would like to see the life of Mark Antony and Brutus in here, and I think it's silly not to put those lives in, but anyway, they ran out of room, I guess. The other ones they have are the Makers of Rome, which you can think of as the Rise of Rome. It goes all the way back to Romulus. This has a lot of lives, nine of them. Oh, excuse me, it doesn't go back to Romulus. It goes only goes back to Coriolanus. Um... But that's a good translation. He has On Sparta, which has uh, Plutarch wrote five or six lives of of different Spartans. This has four of them. Um, It doesn't reprint the Lysander because Lysander is printed in the Rise and Fall of Athens, 
which also has nine Greek lives. So the only one that I didn't mention is the Age of Alexander. Now, if you get all five of those, even if you buy them used, which I recommend you do, right? Thrift books or whatever you're going to use, you're still going to be dropping probably between 60 and 80 bucks on five books, which considering what you get, I, I think it's worth it. But Obviously, you can buy them one at a time and take them through the narrative. The introductions are good. The maps are good. There's a lot more help than there is in something like the modern library translations, which just have the words of Plutarch. And Plutarch's lives, when you try to put it all into one volume, as modern library used to do, if you can find an old hardcover version of it, I have that on my desk right here. The old hardcover version of Plutarch's Lives, published originally back in the 80s, is 1,300 pages long, and it only ha the only extra material it contains is a table of contents, a small introduction, and an index. Every other word is Plutarch's. That about wraps it for this episode. So I hope I've inspired you to read Plutarch. I hope you are someone who loves to know and see and someone who looks to um, to invite the biography of famous or great men into your home. You can find more information about the podcast at grammaticus.co slash podcast. Please leave a review of the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And I want, just want to thank you for listening, and I hope I've inspired you to open Plutarch and let his lives affect yours. Mm -hmm.